Hi, and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast. I'm Lindsay Mayland, and I'm so excited to be here with you. On today's episode, we're talking about quilting retreats. The editors are sharing their best advice for attending a quilt retreat. And later in the show, you'll hear Vanessa Vargas-Wilson of Crafty Gemini talk about the luxury quilt retreats she operates. We'll also chat how to stay accountable for your UFO projects, answer reader questions, and talk about sewing machine needles. So let's dive right in. Have you ever been on a quilt retreat? For many quilters, it's something they look forward to year after year, and for others, it's a dream they hope to cross off their bucket list one day. It can be an inspiring and fun event for all those who attend, and a way to make some new quilting friends while you make a lot of progress on your projects. I'm here with Jody Sanders, the editor of American Patchwork and Quilting, and Doris Brunette, the editor of Quilt Sampler, who both go on quilting retreats frequently. They have some great advice to share for all of those who have a quilt retreat in their future. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having us. This is a topic that Doris and I both love. We both attend a variety of different retreats hosted by different groups. And I think that's the thing that maybe people don't recognize is that it could be a guild that's hosting a retreat. It could be a shop. It could be a teacher. Doris, you've just come back from a retreat with a group of friends. I did. We were a group of friends that met about 10 years ago. We were all had quilt blogs at the time and met online. So we decided, picked a retreat center, and one person kind of took charge of organizing it. And we came from all over the country, and we've been getting together every year since. So, And that's the neat thing I think about quilt retreats is that they can take on so many different forms and and ways that they're put together whether it's a group of friends um, who are just getting together to sew for a weekend and have done that for several years or it's more specialized in terms of an actual project in the same location Um, but I think the main thing is that it's just getting away and enjoying some time with some like-minded people I know for me I have boys and a husband and I don't have any sisters and I enjoy getting away with my lady friends and my quilting friends and just doing something that I enjoy uh, for several days at a time. But I think we've also, because we've done it for so many years, we've also maybe got some tips that we could share with people. There's some things for people to think about as you're getting ready to either go to a retreat for the first time or maybe you want to even plan a retreat. You've never been to one. You don't know anything about retreats. You don't know where to even start. But maybe we could talk about some things that could help people when they're getting ready to go to that first retreat or maybe even plan a retreat. So I think the first thing is to figure out who who's going to be part of the retreat you know and maybe you can talk about the friends you said you guys were all bloggers and so you didn't necessarily live close to each other in terms of geography right no we didn't so the uh, one person who kind of brought it all together chose a retreat center that was in a convenient location to her and those of us that could drive drove we have you know people that drive five hour drives. We have a person that drives about nine hours to get there. We have somebody that flies from California to the Midwest, someone from Florida to the Midwest. So it kind of depends. And you don't have to do big retreats like that. It can be something local you do. Like you mentioned that there are guild retreats often. I know the guild that both you and I belong to has retreats here in the area and you can stay overnight there or if you prefer you can go home and sleep at night and come back. 
Um, a lot of the smaller retreats are like that. So it kind of depends. Tips for packing and that sort of thing kind of depend on what type of retreat you're doing and whether or not you need to bring bedding and towels and in, in addition to all of your quilting supplies and projects. Yeah, I have a friend who, um, well, several friends actually, that bring their chairs with them to yes. a quilting retreat, depending on if you've been someplace <laughs> before. And you know the quality or lack thereof of, of some of the seating that you have. You know, there's some of my friends who can only take themselves in their vehicle when they're going because they bring so much stuff with them, including their own chairs and ironing boards and cutting mats and things like that. And you mentioned people having to fly. I think that's also a consideration when you're deciding and determining what to pack. Oh, is yeah, are you going difference. across country and flying or are you able to drive and pack as much as you can in your right. car? I went to a retreat last summer in Texas and it was the first time I'd ever flown to a retreat. And yeah, that's a whole different ball game. You know, then you have to consider like is somebody that's local or the retreat center, do they provide rulers and cutting mats and some of the bigger things that um, you don't want to carry? Uh, obviously, if you have rotary cutters and that type of thing, it needs to be in your checked baggage and not in your carry-on items. So that makes a big difference. I know a lot of people that like the friends that I retreated with um, last month that had to fly, they bring kits a lot of times because it's a contained project. It's a project that usually will keep them busy for the whole time that we're there. And that way they only have to bring, you know, one project as opposed to um, those of us who pack like six projects in case we get bored with one, we move on to the next. Yeah, I'm guilty. One retreat that I drove to, my suitcase with my fabric in it was bigger than my suitcase with my clothes yeah, for the week. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, mine you know, one of the considerations is how are you getting there and um, how are you going to get all your stuff there and back uh, in the, the retreat that you went to with your group. Now, do you guys have that in association with a quilt shop or is it separate from a quilt shop that's it is, close by? Yeah, it's a retreat center that is owned by a quilt shop. So um, it's right there. The shop is basically across the street. And I know there's several of those around the country. I've been to different ones here in the Midwest. It's kind of nice because then if you forget something, you can run across the street and get whatever thread you need. Or, um, you know, you get tired of what you're sewing on, you can go buy a new project too. Yeah, and the nice um, thing is most of those shops will run a tab for you. Exactly, so, you know, yeah. the nice thing or bad yeah. thing, depending on how you look at it, <laughs> is that you just go in and for whatever time you're there, you just, you know, they run a, a tab on the side and you pay for it before you leave. And, exactly. Um, that's also a nice, yeah, a nice thing to have. If you're to retreat, I know for some of the retreats I've been to, we're at a youth camp kind of situation where um, it's probably a little less expensive than if you're at a hotel. That's mm -hmm. also an option for people is to have a retreat at a hotel with a meeting room. Those costs usually, you know, start start adding up pretty quickly. So if you can find a camp, maybe um, they usually have big meeting rooms or eating areas that you can have your sewing separate from the eating and you don't necessarily have to clear everything off at every meal. But one of the things that you need to take, take into consideration if you're doing it at like a youth camp is kind of the sleeping situation too. And you usually have to bring your own bedding. So you need right. to make sure and do that. I have had friends who have ended up at the local Walmart because they've forgotten sheets or towels or something. <laughs> the other thing is we've gotten older that we pay attention to is uh, the bunk bed situation. Uh, one group I've been going to the retreat for 25 years, and I know it's that long because I was pregnant with my son. 
um, the first time I went, and he's going to be 25. So I know how many years I've been going to that particular retreat. But we had bunk beds, and 25 years ago, that wasn't a big deal to get up on the top bunk. <laughs> 25 years later, it's a big deal. Right. And so that's <laughs> actually one of the reasons why we left the camp that we were retreating at is because – we just couldn't get up on those top bunks anymore. Right. Um, and so I think that's a consideration when you're looking into going to a retreat um, is kind of finding out what those those kind of sleeping situations are. Uh, the other thing that I think people need to, like, look at or think about is, like, the food situation. And, and there's lots of ways we can go on this. So, for example, I'm thinking of food like most retreats have, like, a treat table. So people right. bring treats, and one of the things I spend more time doing probably than sewing is visiting and, and talking with people and also going to the treat table. Uh, one of the things I try and always do with the treat table is to take something that can be left out all day long. So as the grazing is going on and people are eating things, I'm not worried about, ooh, do I need to get this in the refrigerator? Oh, does this need to be refrigerated? So I think thinking about those kinds of things when you're going to a retreat, and it's things that aren't necessarily always on a checklist. You know, right. we do have a really great checklist um, of what to pack for a sewing retreat. And, you know, we want to talk about a few of those things as well. When you're packing, I think for clothes is just to remember to bring layers, you know, the the temperature in those rooms can vary quite a bit. A lot of big meeting rooms have windows in them, so they might be warmer during the day when the sun's out and a little cooler at night. Or, you know, you're in a really hot climate, and so the air conditioning is just chillier in the room because they're trying to keep things cool. So I think bringing layers is a great idea just so that you can add or take things off um, just to make sure you're comfortable because there's one thermostat and lots of friends there. Right. And, yeah, even if you live with only one person, you know it's hard to please everybody all the time when it comes to <laughs> the temperature and climate in a room. So. Right. So in terms of packing and what you should take, you know, the first thing you want to do is find out from who's ever hosting the retreat, what do they provide? There may be some things you can take, but you also need to know that you're probably going to have to share some of those things and be ready to do that. Definitely. And I know some... Some retreat centers will provide the rulers and cutting mats, and you just need to bring your own uh, rotary cutter. But if you need something, a specialty ruler, you want to make sure to bring your own, or you have one that has the half-inch marks that, you know, work you use all the time. I would bring the one you're comfortable with. with a lighting is a big lighting, deal for that me. Was, yeah, yeah, for sure. I yeah. always make sure that rarely are you going to have a place that's going to have good enough lighting that you're going to be happy with. So always some kind of task lighting if you have the opportunity. Opportunity, I would suggest bringing that along. One of the retreat centers that I've been, or actually it's, I think it's a youth camp that I've been to before, um, they always have an issue with overloading the electricity. <laughs> and sometimes that'll help. That will happen if you are in a hotel conference area or something too. If everybody brings a little travel iron and plugs it in, it only takes like that one machine to like flip on and then it's, that's it. <laughs> and you it overload really, the circuit. Yeah. And I think, you know, the iron really does seem to be the problem, you it know, does, and in yeah. most places that I've been, when you know, circuits are going out or things are happening, it's usually because all the irons are plugged in. So yeah. that's a really good point to make. You know, you're going to want to make sure that your sewing machine is in good working order as well. So you want to make sure that you've got it cleaned and it's oiled and it's ready to sew. I usually try and get several bobbin, bobbins also wound so that I can just sit down and start sewing as soon as I get there. But as I mentioned, also that power cord, make sure that you've got that. I've 
been to several retreats where somebody's either forgotten their foot feed or, you know, the plug-in cord, and then you get there, and, you know, depending on how far you've had to travel to get there, you may be stuck with whatever handwork you've brought or helping somebody else cut if you can't um, have that particular piece that you need to plug in. I've also been guilty of taking a second machine along, um, particularly in retreats I go to where I can drive, and I know some of the people have to fly, and I kind of bring it as a backup so that if something happens to their machine, we've got an extra one in my car that they also can use. So it's not that I'm necessarily suggesting that, but, you know, if you if you do drive and, you know, people that, that have to fly, um, that's not a bad thing to, to do for your fellow friend. That's not a bad idea at all. Yeah. I've had a machine stop working at, on me at retreat before, so it's not a bad idea to have uh, another smaller machine. Um, even if it's just a featherweight or something, just to have a backup machine in your in your vehicle. What do you usually take to sew on? Or are you like me and you overpack? <laughs> I tend to overpack. Yeah, I actually usually look at my UFO list of what I've got going on because I don't get a lot of chunks of sewing time at home. So that's why I take my vacations and I take retreats because that gives me several dedicated days to sewing so I can catch up on some things. So um, at my last retreat, I finished up two quilt tops and I got one trimmed and bound. So um, it would have taken me who knows how long at home, you know, for the course of a few months probably to finish those things up. But because I do have that dedicated time and you're motivated because you're there chatting with your friends and having fun. So and it keeps it, you going. It's funny because when I tell either other coworkers or family and they're like, oh, you're on vacation. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to a culture retreat. And they're like, that's what you do on your vacation? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's what we do. That's for fun. So I'm not sitting on a beach somewhere. I'm not you know, climbing a mountain somewhere for me, a vacation is be able to get away and have that precious time sewing and with my friends and enjoying that. I I, I try to take kits because I think in theory that's a really good idea, but I also end up taking way more fabric and way more things than I usually need. I, I've gotten better over the years, but it still is something that I need to like pare down and think about um, and not take all the tools and gadgets that I think I'm going to need and the suitcase full of fabric because when I get there there's always somebody that has a better piece of fabric than I have and if I have my whole suitcase full maybe I can go there and find something that's similar uh, to continue on with. One of the fun things that I did um, at a retreat a few years ago was to make some signature blocks ahead of time and they're just small four-inch blocks. They have muslin, a muslin rectangle, and then triangles on all four sides. And had everybody at the retreat sign one of those blocks. And it was kind of a memory that I now have several years it's later. It's a really good idea. Of everybody at the retreat, there's one of the blocks has the date and the location of where we met. And so that's an idea, too. Maybe if you're, if you're going on a retreat that's either a special group of friends or it's like a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing, is maybe have some kind of memento um, that you can include either in the quilt itself or maybe even just make some signature blocks for everybody to that sell. That is a really good idea. Thank you for sharing all these retreat tips. Visit the show notes at allpeoplequilt.com for the link to the retreat packing list. We'll be back after this quick ad break. Now we'll dive into our UFO challenge, a segment where we address common finishing problems so you can complete your UFOs. 
I'm here with Doris, and she's going to share a finishing tip to help you on your journey to crossing those projects off your list. Hi, Doris. Hi, Lindsay. Thank you. Uh, Last month on episode 426, um, I gave a general overview of what challenges we face when it comes to our quilting and sewing UFOs. And some people are like, well, why is it a challenge? And, you know, my today's tip involves accountability. Why do I need to be accountable for my UFOs? But if you have any of those feelings of guilt or shame, like many of us do when it comes to telling people about how many UFOs you like, (laughs) you have. Um, If you're a newer quilter, that's probably a pretty low number. But um, some of us who have been quilting for years, it's a pretty big number. So if you're like me with any challenge, whether it's making myself finish UFOs, keeping with an exercise plan, eating healthier, or whatever it is, being accountable is key and finding what accountability works for you. If you're the type of person who can just make a deal with yourself and follow through without fudging on it or cheating, then just make a promise to yourself that you'll finish one or two UFOs for every new project you start or one or two UFOs a month, whatever it is. Alternating your new and UFO projects is a really good way to work and that's what I've been trying to do this year is make sure I finish something before I can start a new project. That's a great idea. (laughs) It just helps you work through the UFOs without getting bored if you allow yourself to start new projects here and there. If you know that making a promise to yourself isn't enough to make you stick to it, and this is kind of me because I will easily, like, fall off the wagon and kind of lie to myself or cheat. (laughs) I mean, it's all being accountable to yourself, but it helps for me to be accountable to something else. So um, maybe find a friend or two that you agree that you're going to work on your UFOs, that you'll complete one UFO a month. Maybe, Maybe it's one every time you get together if you see each other every couple of months. And then celebrate those accomplishments. Get them done so that there's a goal or a reward at the end. And you can meet for coffee or lunch to show them off. As it's a long distance, say it's an Instagram friend that you chat with long distance, maybe you can send each other a fat quarter or a little gift as a reward when you finish that month's projects. And then the other, uh, the third example I would give would be joining a UFO challenge group such as the one that we have through our APQ website. Sometimes you can find those through guilds or even Instagram as well. Um, Our APQ website has a really active Facebook group and the one thing that I think is really wonderful about it is that if you are having trouble deciding what to work work on next, a lot of times, such as our group, we have you number your UFOs at the beginning of the year, we choose a number each month, and you work on that UFO. That way you don't have to decide which one, especially if you're not super excited about any of them. (laughs) Um, The other thing that's wonderful about our Facebook group is anytime you come across something and you're like, oh, I really hate this, or I don't like the way this part came together, or this isn't pieced very well, but I don't feel like taking it completely apart. Put a photo up on the Facebook group and ask questions, ask for advice. I promise you'll get a lot of suggestions, and surely you'll like at least one of those suggestions, and it can really get be the motivator to get you moving again. So if you want to join our Facebook group, it's the American Patchwork and Quilting UFO Challenge. That's the name of the group and share with us um, what you do finish up or even your progress uh, using, um, share it on social media using the uh, hashtag APQ resolution. Yep, and Doris mentioned that we choose a new UFO number to work on each month. So since this is the first podcast we've had in August, I get to share that number with you. So August's number is number nine. So you can learn more about the UFO challenge by visiting allpeoplequilt.com slash resolution. Thanks, Doris. Thank you. I'm here with Joanna Bergerino, the editor of Quilts and More, for Ask Us Anything, a segment where we answer your most pressing quilting questions. So we have two great questions here today. 
So the first is from Jeanette Smith, which was posted on the Quilts and More Quilt Along Facebook group. And she asks, how do you line up seams when sewing pieces together to have it match up? I pin the seam in place, and when I turn it over, the seams don't line up close enough. So what a great question. I know this is something a lot of quilters struggle with. If you're nesting seams, be sure you press the seams well in opposite directions first. That will give you two good ridges to abut your seams against. I like to place two pins in an X where the seams join, with each pin starting in one seam allowance and going through the other seam allowance. It just helps keep them from squirming around. As you get used to nesting seams, you should be able to feel if the fabric is slipping a little bit as you're feeding it through the machine. Um, you'll just notice that they aren't nesting quite as well anymore. And what about like if you're matching points? Like I know it can be really tricky to not cut off points when you have two points that are touching each other. Right. Uh, I actually recently filmed a video about this uh, showing a little trick that I call the positioning pin. So basically on the wrong side of your fabric, you're going to stick a pin through the first point you want to align. Then you're going to push that same pin through the second point on the right side of the fabric. Make, making sure that the positioning pin is perpendicular, you then pin the two pieces together as normal. So if you did it right, the pieces should be right side together. And once you sew it, those points should be touching. Yeah, so it's really easier to see this tip in action. So if you go to our show notes, we will link to the video that Joanna did so you can see it. It's a really helpful technique to learn. Absolutely. It's one of my favorites, and I use it all the time. Okay, so the second question is from J.C. Steiger, um, and this was posted on the American Patchwork and Quilting Facebook page. And she asks, how do I square material that came from clothes or bedding? So a lot of material that comes from clothes or bedding is knit or it's of a different weave than quilting cotton, and they can be prone to stretching or distorting. You can try adding a lightweight interfacing starch or a product like Terial Magic or Odif's Fabric Booster Spray to make the fabric just a little bit stiffer and to keep it from stretching too much. Sometimes the material you're using is cut at odd angles and you need to square it up before you sew with it. Using a sharp rotary cutting blade, and avoiding moving your pieces too much as you're sewing will help you to avoid some of that distortion. When squaring a piece of quilting cotton, you align the selvages and then trim the side edges to be at a 90 degree angle from the selvage. Since bedding or clothing material won't have those selvages, it makes it a little bit trickier. So fold the fabric in half, cut a straight edge to act as your selvages, and then you can use that straight edge as a reference point to cut those 90 degree side edges. Awesome. Thanks so much, Joanna. So if you have a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, just email it to us at apqpodcast at meredith.com. Now Joanna and I are jumping into Back to Basics, a segment where we share tips and tricks about a sewing tool or technique. Joanna, what are we learning today? Today, I'm going to share with you two of my favorite tips for sewing machine needles. The first tip is that it's helpful to switch out needle types depending on what type of material you're sewing. So for example, if you're sewing a t-shirt quilt with knit fabrics, uh, it's best to use a ballpoint tip, jersey, or stretch needle. When you go to the store, the packaging will usually tell you what kind of material is best um, for that particular needle, so that's really helpful. Uh, for most quilting cottons, a universal needle in size 
80 over 12 is the most popular. Since you may need to swap needles frequently, I like to keep a pin cushion near my sewing machine that I divided up into labeled sections. So each section holds a particular type of needle and then I don't have to remember what it was. Uh, when the needle gets too old, I just toss it. The second tip is a pretty basic one, but it bears repeating because I'm really bad at this. So change out your needle and throw out the old one every eight hours of stitching or at the least at the end of every product project. Again, I'm guilty, like so guilty of keeping my needles past their prime. But you'll find that your stitch quality isn't as good and there's a chance they'll break which can damage your expensive sewing machine and nobody wants that. So change out those needles often. Great tips. Thanks for those reminders, Joanna. We'll be back after this quick ad break. Welcome to Getting Social with Jess. I'm your host, Jess Sigler. This week, I got to talk to Vanessa Vargas Wilson, who is the Crafty Gemini. You probably know her from her YouTube demos. And actually, I was editing our chat afterwards, and my son walked in the room. And since it's a video chat, he could see the split screen of me on one side, Vanessa on the other. And he was asking who it was. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to show you her YouTube page. And he freaked out. <laughs> She has over 500,000 subscribers on YouTube. And to a kid who watches YouTube, like I think he watches it all day. I mean, it's probably not all day, but he watches a lot of YouTube instant street cred with him. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes um, that shows like pictures of the house that they get for their, these retreats that we talk about in the conversation. So you want to go check that out and then daydream of joining her someday like I'm doing right about now. So enjoy the conversation with Vanessa. Welcome to Getting Social with Jess, Vanessa Vargas Wilson. Thanks for being with me. No problem. Thanks for having me, Jess. Yeah. To kick things off, I'm sure everybody knows who you are, but would you give us a little background of your personal life and maybe your crafting and professional life too? Sure. So online, I'm known as the Crafty Gemini, and you can find me under that handle on everything from YouTube to Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, all the things. I'm under the Crafty Gemini. And a little bit about me. I uh, was born in New York. I grew up in Miami, Florida with my mom and four or three other sisters were four total. And my mom made our clothes when we were kids because when she came to the U.S. in the 60s, she worked in the garment district in New York City. Oh. So she was a teenager. And, um, you know, back in those days, you got paid by the piece. So the faster you were, the more money you could make. And for her, she was super fast. And I think that's where I get it from. I talk fast. I do yes. fast. <laughs> and uh, she used to often sew her fingers because they were industrial <gasps> sewing machines, right? So she said, I know, right? Super scary. <laughs> so she used to have like a system, like she would literally pass out, you know, lean on the machine. No. Through, yep. Wrap it up and keep on going. So when I, at eight years old, wanted to learn how to sew, she would tell me no. You know, she'd always say it's too dangerous because we only had an industrial sewing machine at home. Absolutely. She had an industrial singer. And um, I remember sometimes when she was gone, I would turn the machine on and just floor it. And it'd be like, I mean, like two, 3,000 <laughs> stitches per minute. It would fly. And so every year I would ask her to teach me how to sew and she'd refuse because she would say it was too dangerous. Mm -hmm. So then my second year in law school, um, I was looking for some type of a creative outlet. So I called my mom like, hey, teach me how to sew. I'm 22. I think it's I can time. keep my fingers away from the needle, you know? So she went to a yard sale and found me a 1966 Singer machine for like 10 bucks, brought oh. it, showed me how to thread it. And then I go, okay, now what? And she says, stitch a thousand straight lines. There's nothing more important than sewing straight. 
<laughs> Whoa. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't think so. I don't have time for that. I want right. to make something, you know? So I took an old pair of jeans, started cutting it up. And I remember sewing the bottom edges together, wrong sides touching. And then I looked at it like, mm, now that doesn't work. Let's chop off that whole seam uh-huh. and redo it wrong, you know, pretty sides together. Sure. And then that's how I just started teaching myself how to do all that stuff. But I've always been really crafty as a kid, making all kinds of stuff. It was just that one craft that I did it because my mom was scared to let me do it. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I graduated law school, but I remember my second and third years. I mean, I would run out of class 10 minutes early, sneak out the back row just to go take a quilting class. And my friends oh. would say, you're the only 22 year old I know that's skipping law <laughs> classes to go quilt with grandmas. And I'm like, yes. And I love every second of it. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Totally. Um, You do so much in your business, but one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was your retreats. When was the first time you did a retreat? So I launched an online quilt club in 2014. Okay. And having run that, we were starting to see like this, I, that's what I wanted to create with it was this amazing community online. Mm-hmm. Well, we were doing the quilt club and everybody was just, I mean, like best of friends, people that lived in areas were meeting up together to work on projects, to chat about things. And so I told my husband, well, what if we do a retreat and give all these club members an opportunity, you know, obviously limited number of people, but give them an opportunity to meet in person. Mm-hmm. We would have so much in common, right? Because in that uh, at that time, I was also doing live streams back in 2014. Wow. So I was doing live chats with them weekly. So it was like we were all getting together for a mini online retreat. Sure. And so the first retreat we did, we had almost 40 people. It was quite intense. People came from everywhere, including Canada, all over the US. Uh, and they were, I mean, ecstatic. They met each other in person, people that they were secret sisters with in different monthly swaps mm-hmm. that we used to run. And so we started from there and it was a way to bring kind of the online community in person, you know, with right. the same thing that we had in common online. And you're in Florida. So That's when right. folks are coming from Canada, <laughs> they're, they're making a special trip to, for that in-person connection. That is so cool. Recently on Instagram, I've seen, <laughs> I don't know how else to say it, but these baller houses <laughs> yeah, that you're hosting. Mini mansions. Yeah, mini um, mansions. I went to go there. Tell me how that came about and what has the response been to it? Sure. So we first started doing retreats at like um, a Lutheran church camp. It's like a kid's summer camp. You know, like you think about camp, right? Cabins right. out in the middle of nowhere. There's no cell reception, no Wi-Fi, right? And it's just outdoorsy. It really is like a retreat retreat. Yeah. And so we did them there for all these years and we would do anywhere from four to six retreats per year. Yeah. All the meals included, all the lodging included. Oh. And the, the, the location was about 50 minutes from my house. So it was still a little while, you know, made sure you, you take everything with you. And then after doing that for a while, I just got like, I personally wanted to bump it up, you know, and mm-hmm. do more like luxury style. And so we started looking at different locations and I wanted something a little bit more intimate, smaller group of people so you can get to know each other a little bit better and in a smaller space where it's not as spread out, right? Mm-hmm. So we found these um, kind of vacation homes near Orlando, Kissimmee area in Florida, so about two two hours from where I live now. Mm-hmm. And I started looking at, you know, seven to 13 bedroom houses and they all have different floor plans because they're individually owned. Well, we found one that has 10 bedrooms and the floor plan is like the uh. most perfect thing <gasps> to have open space for sewing, right? Sure. Or quilting, whatever, for this type of an event. And so the idea is there's private rooms that are, I mean, plush. Backboard of the bed is like 
pink crush velvet is ridiculous. Like they're so lush. It's right. amazing. And so then we do have some double options that way people, you know, if they're bringing a friend or, or a parent or a sister or whatever, they can um, save a little bit of money there. Right. And there's still great mm-hmm. size rooms. Everybody has, you know, pretty much private bathrooms, even the, the doubles that share a bathroom. There are huge bathroom spaces. We have a hot tub, a pool. I always have a massage therapist on hand at all of my retreats to offer at least 10 to 15 minute chair massages, right? Because we get so carried away sitting at that sewing machine day in and day out. It's great to break that up. And so on the Friday or Saturday, I usually have her come. She does chair massages in a private room, lights off, like really relaxing. And then people have the opportunity to book her for a full hour later that Mm. day or the next day, you know? So it's kind of like some people get away from home and busy work life to go sew with people that speak their language. At the same time, you do get a little bit of that me time Take care of yourself. If you want to fit in an hour massage on top of the chair massage, uh, you can do that too. Then of course, you know, my retreats, I want, I like to do them where it's like you sign up for the projects and the classes, but when you get there, if you're tired, do whatever you want, right? This is your getaway. So I always allow people to either work on their own projects that they brought from home, because this Mm -hmm. is like downtime where they can finish gifts or whatever, or they can participate in the classes. So there's no pressure to keep up or to do those projects. You get all the materials, you know, whatever we covered in the kit that was gonna be included, but it's up to you. So I have people that will sew a little bit, they go put on their bathing suits, jump into the hot tub, Mm. swim in the pool a little bit, then come right back to the sewing machine. And so because it's all in one house, right, and you have private fence, it just feels like it's your time. You don't have to waste time going somewhere. It's all right there. So you can do as much or as little as you'd like. Uh, Then we cater the lunches. And I have a private chefs that come and cook us dinner two of the nights. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) If I wanted to come based on the photos alone, I want to come even more now hearing like that is so much care put in each step. That's what I wanted was like, bump it up. Like if I'm going to travel, I'm going to go far. Yes, I want to sew. And this is another thing that they don't bring sewing machines to ours unless they want to bring theirs. Some Mm -hmm. people that drive will bring theirs because they can, you know, Uh, but we provide high-end machines for them to use, everything included. That way you travel light. Everything is provided for you from ironing boards to rotary cutters, mats, I mean, all those notions. All you're bringing is whatever extra stuff you want to work on, right? Uh, For me, thinking as a consumer, like when I sign up for retreats, and that's what I did before I started offering them, was that I went to a couple different ones and was taking notes. What I like, what I don't like, what I would probably do different. Uh, And so that's how we were able to kick the first one off with a bang because I had already had, you know, some background research and knowledge of what I wanted exactly. I want it to be a full on getaway, you know, that sounds ideal. Um, how would people get on a waiting list or to be notified of future retreats? So now because the luxury retreats, <laughs> such a small number of people can get in. Mm-hmm. Um, we basically every year on January 1st, release whatever the theme, the dates and the cost for the retreats of the entire year are, and then people can sign up then. they I know halfway through the year, people are like, do you still have spots for the October? And I'm like, they usually sell out in a couple of days and the more popular ones sell out within 10 or 15 minutes. Wow. Um, yeah, so right when we release it. So the best way to be notified is really to sign up for my email newsletter. And mm-hmm. you can do that on my website at craftygemini.com. You just add yourself to that list and that's all, you know, that's where people will sign up for a lottery basically because you know how it is when you right. send out an email uh, if you're in a different time zone and you're sleeping when I sent out the email, then I get nasty emails of people telling me like, why did you even send out an email? By the time I clicked it, it was sold out. So we try to make it a little bit fair. And this year we did a lottery. Oh, 
So okay. you can get it whenever. And then we randomly chose people, give you the opportunity to sign up and pay. If not, then we move on to the next person in the lottery, you know? Yeah. To make it a little bit more fair since we know there's people across different time zones trying to get in. Right. Good to know. Um, so I'm curious, just because you've done so many tutorials and teaching online, how has offering classes in person at your store and through the retreats, how has that affected how you do your online demos? So I think naturally as a teacher, and I think that's why I've had success is like my teaching style. Yes. Naturally to me, I'm a teacher. I've been teaching my whole life. Even when I was a little kid, I would teach kids older than me. So I think <laughs> I have like a natural ability to kind of put myself in the other person's shoes. And that's what I get the feedback from a lot of my viewers is that when I teach something, no matter how simple or complex, I try to teach it in a way that I don't assume the viewer knows anything, right? And so, you know, when we are comfortable at something, we tend to forget about all those beginner basic things. Yes. And I think I have kind of a unique ability to still reference those things for beginners, even though it's something that I've been doing for so many years now. So teaching in person, I feel like with that ability that I already have, teaching so many different individuals who obviously, you know, typically people who sign up for classes, it's because they need help. They don't feel mm -hmm. like, you know, maybe I've watched videos or paid for classes or bought books, but I just can't get it, right? So if I get a, a class of say six beginner students for Sewing 101, for me as a teacher, I love the challenge of having to re-explain, switch up the demo until I make every single one of my students get it. So I always tell the story and this is typically how it works. Say six students, I'll explain the first step of the project. Two of them instantly are like, oh, okay. And they're off and working. The other four are looking at me like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like I have gonna no need idea. some more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then for me, it's like, all right, let me see. I'm trying to think on how they're visualizing. If they didn't understand this way, let me see how I can re-explain it. And then I'll do it again and I'll explain it a different way. And two more out of those remaining four are like, oh, now I get it. Mm -hmm. And there's always like one or two more that are still looking at me like, yeah, I'm still lost. <laughs> and so I keep going, keep going, keep going until I make sure every single student has understood and now gets it in their own way, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think there's nothing more discouraging as a student to be in a class where the teacher explains something one way and one way only and everybody gets it and you don't and then you automatically start thinking you're dumb well this is not mm -hmm. for me i can't do it it must be me and it's not right we right. all learn differently sure. especially when we're working with these type of projects where we're taking two-dimensional mediums and creating three-dimensional that's not for everybody mm -hmm. you know you have to be able to visualize it in your mind's eye it's engineering so right. however i need to explain it to make you get it that's my goal as a teacher and so teaching in person I'm able to see so many more individual students and I can tweak it in a way for teaching online where I can say it two or three different ways in a tutorial to try and cover the most yes. for viewers. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I feel like that is why you've had so much success and I like how you view it as a challenge and you're really invested in. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Through and through, I'm a teacher at heart. That's the challenge of what I do, right? I yep. can sew, I can quilt, I can cook, I can do farming stuff. Like no matter what the actual thing it is I'm doing, I enjoy the part of teaching it and passing mm -hmm. that knowledge on to people. So I think that's the funnest part for me. That's wonderful. Okay. This is a short interview, so I have just one more question because you are always exploring different crafts mediums. All the things. Yeah, what's what's recent? What's next? What do you have your eye on? I'm currently obsessed with knitting. <laughs> I just got back from Denver. I was filming a secret project that I'm working on with Blueprint, mm -hmm. uh, formerly known as Craftsy. And while I was there, I visited that destination shop, Fancy Tiger Craft. And um, one of the owners, Jamie, I was talking to her about spinning class I had taken locally, and it was like an epic fail. As a teacher, I was just like, 
like that was not the way I would have taught it. It was not helpful at all. So she's like, well, I recommend you start off with a drop spindle. So I was like, which one do I buy? So I bought a drop spindle there and bought some wool roving and I'm now spinning yarn. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so you're going to do spinning all the things. That's you're what gonna I'm going to do every with. single step of like making oh. a sweater from <laughs> The wool. <laughs> uh, somebody wrote me that the other day on Facebook. She said, next week we'll hear about the sheep you have on your farm now, you know? And I'm like, uh, it's Florida, maybe not, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that is yeah. so cool. I just want to thank you for your time today. It was so great to hear about your process, your history, your loves, your, your passions. Yeah, we just thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jess. This was super fun. Okay, one of the things I just decided I'm going to start doing is come on here after the interviews and like give my true confessions. And one of the things I really like about Vanessa is the way she talks to her kids. And that's going to sound sort of strange, I guess, but I follow her on Instagram. She is at Crafty Gemini and she teaches them. They do homeschooling or unschooling and they have their own farm. So they're raising their own food. They're building a house right now. Um, There's just a lot of things that come up in the farm life and chances that she is taking to instruct her kids. And I think it's so cool, the patient and calm way that she approaches it. And so anyway, Vanessa, you're doing a great job at life, just full stop. So have a great week and I will be back in a few weeks with more interviews. Thanks so much for listening. I'm at Threaded Quilting on Instagram if you ever want to get in touch with me. Just pop in my DMs. I'd love to hear from you. Bye. Before we leave today, I wanted to quickly highlight a review of our podcast. Happy Stitches says, I love this podcast. It's so fun to hear from the experts each week as they share tips about a variety of sewing topics. I enjoy hearing about what's new and trending in the quilting world and the interviews with popular designers. I feel like the hosts are my quilting buddies, and I played the podcast while sewing. It's like I'm at a retreat. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much for that review, Happy Stitches. And if that's you, please reach out to us at apqpodcast at meredith.com so we can send you a little gift. And remember, if you love this podcast, please leave a review. We may feature yours on an upcoming show.